Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, we take them for granted, but the world of building tiny, tiny, tiny transistors on tiny, tiny, tiny computer chips is a fascinating one. We'll be talking about all of the effort that goes into building these atom by atom uh, with Michael Nolan from Tyndall. Uh, if you'd like to contact us on the program, you can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. We get to those comments at the end of the podcast. Before we talk about chips, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me uh, on the line is Dr. Lara Dungan, MD and immunologist, and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. You're both very welcome. Our first story has to do with AI once more, but this time creating something not really human. Yeah, this is actually fascinating and kind of mind-blowing for me as well. I'm sure you've been talking a lot about the chat GPT and how this new type of technology is allowing people to answer questions and even have conversations with AI. And what they've done in this company called NVIDIA, and they have their partner Ezozine, they're over in the States, and they just released this new information at a, a big conference over in San Francisco, the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. And what they have done is taken that model, that model where you can feed a question in to a language learning program, but they've used it for protein, for proteomics, which is the creation of proteins that are a different series of amino acids unfolded in different ways. And they've essentially said to the program, create a protein for me. Um, And it's done it. And it's done it by creating a protein that doesn't exist in real life. Um, Specifically, they were looking at a reasonably rare genetic disease. The genetic disease is called PKU or phenylketonuria. Um, It's a disease where people can't process the amino acid phenylalanine. So if it's not discovered very early, which it usually is because it's part of the heel prick testing, people can actually have really significant neurological impairment. Um, But it's a rare disease, but it's very interesting because it's one gene. So it's a really interesting disease to target. And they're not targeting the genetics of it like some people are to try and basically inject the proper or working gene. They're looking at the protein. And what they did was they asked the system to make a protein that works better. Um, And it did. It it did the protein with 51 mutations and it works two and a half times more effectively. It's an enhancement of two and a half times the functionality. And it's really interesting because in theory, if you could put this into people who were unwell, you would have a very highly functioning enzyme that would have all of the normal safety features of an enzyme. So you wouldn't be looking at any genetic reprogramming. Now, we're miles away from putting this into a person. And obviously it comes with a lot of problems. You know, where do you put in the enzyme? How long does it last? When it goes, do you keep re-injecting? You know, there's a lot of issues with it, but it's fascinating and, and And kind of, I don't know, terrifying as well to think you can feed a question into artificial intelligence. It comes up with its own protein and it makes it. So this is the part that I find strange. So I can understand how you might put in data of what proteins look like, how they stitch together, the sort of bonds and how molecules kind of tie together in, in, in a protein. I can understand how if you had a powerful enough computer that it had that sort of information, it might come up with different sort of versions. The two parts that I find really magic is one that um, it, it can do that in a way that we think would be stable and would work. But second, that you can then make that or synthesize that protein. H- how is that done? Yeah, I mean, you can synthesize proteins. Proteins have been synthesizable for a long time. And it's even done- if they don't exist in nature. 
Well, I mean, I suppose that's what's fascinating. It's coming up with the idea of the specific mutations. A protein is just from a code. So your DNA makes RNA and your RNA gets fed through a little thing inside your cells, which turns it into protein. So protein is just a code. Right. Um, and, and if you change the code, you can make whatever protein you want. But the, yeah, and, and so making proteins isn't the most exciting part. It's the fascinating part is making a protein that is intelligent enough to still work and still fold into a normal protein, but be more functional. It's really just, I mean, it would have taken, you know, I mean, years and years of, of trial and error evolution in labs to try and do what this AI did. Yeah, really, really cool. Um, and interesting to, to, to hear what happens when we start putting those proteins into, I mean, uh, Petri dishes and then um, animal models. But that's uh, a way of, uh, a, a bit for now. Uh, Shane, our second story has to do with the Earth's magnetic core, which appears to be flipping. Yes, it's having a change of heart. So if we go below the, um, the crust where we are on the Earth, we go through a viscous mantle, right? Occasionally that bubbles up through Ugh. volcanoes and the like. And then there's a liquid outer core and that the motion of that liquid metal gives rise to our, our magnetic field in the Earth. But within that is a solid core and it's mainly made of iron. And it's, it's thought that it rotates at a slightly different rate to the rest of the, the layers. Um, what always fascinated me was how can you know like we can only dig down so far into the earth so how do we know that there's all these different levels what we do is we actually look at how um, seismic waves move through the earth and just as a light wave will bend as it moves from from air into glass etc or into water um, seismic waves or earthquake waves will bend or refract as they move through different media we call them p waves uh, P for primary, nothing, nothing else. Right. And so, so they, they bend and deviate as they go through the earth. And that allows you to know what's there. And we're also able to tell from them the rate of rotation. And that's what's been done in this paper. And it's been published this week in Nature Geoscience. And they, they are um, they're, they're looking at data from of all earthquakes uh, that are suitable since the 1990s. And they're saying that the Earth's core was slowing in its rotation and now appears to have started reversing in the opposite direction. And they're suggesting that it does this approximately every 35 years so that it goes through these periods of of, of oscillation, I suppose, back and forth. Um, now, it's a very small uh, change, right? You know, so the, the Earth's core is not uh, said to be rotating at very, very different speeds to the rest of the Earth. But there is there is a, a deviation and that can have effect uh, for us. It, so it might change the um, the strength of the magnetic field and it might also change the length of a day, but by a very, very small amount. This is different to the north and south poles flipping entirely, right? That is something that is also on the horizon, but would have a much bigger effect on on the world as we know it. Yeah, it is. So the um, absolutely so. And those that, that kind of so-called north and south pole is due to the liquid um, outer core and the, the movement of, of, of metal within it. And that basically uh, creates a huge magnetic field in the earth that looks like one of those. We all see it drawn as a bar magnet, but it's not. It's like 
big kind of swirling masses of liquid metal. But isn't it crazy what goes on beneath our feet? I remember my very first geography lesson in school when the, we had this very eccentric but brilliant geography teacher and he ran into the classroom to tell us about the restless earth. And it, it, it truly is restless uh, below our feet. I have become that man now. I'm the eccentric. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so there, there's a lot going on down there. It's incredible that we can tell that it's going on. It's an incredible that we can tell with such precision to know that it possibly is changing. Um, our third story, Lara, has to do with green spaces. And I suppose a finding that isn't necessarily surprising, but I, it's good to know. No, exactly. I suppose it's um, what a lot of people w- would know in their heart of hearts. It is believed that spending more time in green or blue spaces, so that includes the, the bluescape, oceans, lakes, that kind of thing, um, is supposed to be very good for human health. The the evidence is inconsistent, though. Um, so I suppose it's one thing to feel it in your waters, but I mean, whether it's, it's true and whether it's borne out in, in evidence is important. And there's new research that comes from Finland, It's a really large study they did in in 2015, 2016. I suppose the important thing to note is this was a survey. So they asked people how often they went to green spaces and then they also asked them what medications they were taking. So whether this is causative or correlative, you know, is anyone's guess really. And I'm not sure that the evidence that is brought forward by this is good or strong evidence, but I believe in it. So I'm going to talk about it anyway. (laughs) So essentially what they found was that people who were able to visit uh, green spaces three or four times a week, so more than three times essentially, had a relatively lower use of drugs, um, so prescription drugs. Now these are drugs for anxiety, insomnia, depression, high blood pressure and asthma. Now I do take a little bit of umbrage because there is an article in The Guardian about this and they say, you know, people had reduced need to turn to drugs as if, you know, taking drugs for depression and anxiety is some sort of weakness. I mean, if somebody has diabetes and they turn to insulin, no one questions them. So we yeah. do need to be really careful when we when we talk about things like this. But what they are saying is that people are very affected by the number of times they visit green spaces. Interestingly, it doesn't say that living around green and blue spaces make a big change. So they say it's just the visiting. But I mean, that's also very hard to know. I mean, there are elderly people who can't get out to further away green spaces. So having green spaces in the locality would surely, you know, improve their health, mental or physical. And so, you know, it it is a survey. So it doesn't really, I think, tell us a huge amount. But it is interesting to know that there is a little bit more evidence out there that green spaces and blue spaces are good for our health. Very good. Shane, our final story has to do with what time it is on the moon. Before we answer that question, do, do we know what time it is at the North Pole? Or yes. h- how, does, how, do, how do we figure that out? We agree it. We all get in a room and uh, the people that need to make this decision just say, uh, we're going to have to pick a time zone and just stick with it. So it's 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 uh, set at universal time, which is great because that's Greenwich Mean Time. So lucky for us, um, good old so, imperialism. So, so, North Pole, so North Pole is Greenwich Mean Time because uh, uh, for people... No, no, it's universal time, which which so happens to be Greenwich Mean Time unless we're in summertime. Right, right. Okay. I'm already <laughs> I'm already worrying about getting confused here. But because um, that was something, obviously, as you go towards the equator, you've got these bars and they're further and further apart. And then as you go higher up, they, these bars all, all come together and then... What time is it? Yeah. I mean, like, it's something I only really contemplated maybe six or seven years ago on the, on the program someone mentioned. It. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. time is it in North Pole? And so it's universal time in the North Pole. It, yeah. and, and and so that's fine because um, we all know what that time is here. But on the moon, it's 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 not as simple. 
No. So what we do when we go into space is we use universal time because we have to have some clock so that like the the people there know when 24 hours has gone by so they can sleep, etc. Um, and like with with the kind of lunar decade ahead, we're going to send all these missions up there. It's going to be essential that we can keep time at a, in a local way. Um, and what what's going to be part of that is knowing where everything is and knowing what time it is. So we have to build a lunar version of GPS, right? So um, so so like a, a global positioning satellite system, but instead of it being global, it's lunar. And they're going to have to put clocks on the moon to do that. So they're going to have to define lunar time. Now, at the heart of this is really cool physics. Clocks tick at a different rate on the moon than they do on the Earth because of relativity, right? So that they're in a different gravitational field to us here on the Earth. So the, the second doesn't pass at the same rate. Here on Earth, we would define the second as a second per second, right? It's bananas. But on the moon, it's slightly different. So if you have uh, an atomic clock on the surface of the moon, which they're going to do, they're going to put three atomic clocks somewhere on the moon, synchronize them, right? And then they have to decide what to do with that. Do they try and every so often get it to sync to universal time on Earth, right? Accounting for these slight differences every so often. Or do we just let it run and create the moon's own time and let the, and, and just be aware of the gap between lunar time and Earth time? And they're saying this is only the beginning because we'd have to do this across the solar system if, we, if we're going further, right? So all these places that we could eventually get to, like Mars or whatever, they're all going to have their own time zones and their own, their own time systems. So we're going to have to build all those things. So when we, when we invented time zones because of trains moving across the surface of the Earth, now we're moving out beyond the Earth and we have to invent ways to tell time in those new spaces. So just it really, really, as if I'm an idiot. <laughs> Don't laugh Everyone's an idiot when as it comes if, to this, including me. <laughs> Why can't we just use universal time and just say it's this this time uh, now, so it's this time there? Because of syncing issues, right? So it's 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 you need you need a more precise local defined time in order to build the um, the, the the positioning satellite system. So you need you need oh, right, to be, you want yeah. To, yeah you need to be very precise with timings yeah. because that allows you to determine how far you've gone and so on. If you're going to go around the moon, you want to know where you are, and to do that, you have to create a new clock for the moon. Yeah, and they have to be precise because when you think about airplanes going around the surface of the Earth, if if they're not accurate to within a meter or, or so, like it's 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 not inconceivable for you to think they could just start flying into one another. If if there isn't some sort of universal order put on this, companies and and uh, and countries that are sending things up there are all going to start doing their own things, and that's when things become chaotic. Yeah, because it'll be like Amazon time. Or uh, it, I'll, I'll see you at Tesla o'clock, Tesla one o'clock. You certainly won't, but SpaceX. Uh, right. Uh, thanks as always for joining Dr. Lara Dungan and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. Yes, this is Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae.
Now, semiconductor devices are everywhere. Nearly 80% of the Irish population have a smartphone, and these devices use the most technologically advanced production facilities on Earth. They are so small that the production right now requires the deposition or removal of atoms one by one on billions of devices. And it's a huge challenge at the frontiers of materials and chemistry research. Here to talk to us about it is Dr. Michael Nolan. He's at Tyndall and a world leader in simulating these novel materials and their production. Welcome to the programme, Michael. Um, I I want you to give me some short fire uh, answers to some questions that maybe a lot of people might know the answers to, but it'll allow us to get to this sort of really interesting science quicker. So uh, let's start very quickly. What is a semiconductor? So a semiconductor is a material that lies somewhere between a conducting metal or a non-conducting material like wood. Um, And the great thing about them is you can control how much electricity flows through them and therefore turn them into a switch which can be turned on or off. And so the building block of all the devices we use, like laptops, smartphones, etc., they all use these tiny, tiny little switches based on silicon semiconductors. And when you hook up those switches or transistors into a uh, an array of let's say structures and devices you can then make all the various um, devices that, that we see so you'll have your central processing unit in your computer your graphics card your storage etc all rely on the um, performance of these semiconducting devices I was um, looking at a video of how um, these silicon uh, chips are made. And I, I I suppose I should have obviously guessed that it's made from essentially heating up glass and then slicing it but uh, or sand and, and slicing it. But can you just take us through the, the materials required just to start off um, making these sort of silicon chips before we talk about different types of materials? Sure. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. The, the basic starting material is a very thin circular wafer of pure silicon, which is obtained essentially from sand, which is silicon dioxide. You essentially kick out the oxygen using heat, and then you very slowly grow these big um, ingots of silicon, which are sliced. Now, the thing about these is they're probably the purest known material on earth because you don't want any impurities, any other elements, any dust or muck, Anything like that is just not allowed. So you start with this ultra, ultra pure silicon. Then you will add other elements in a controlled manner to help it conduct electricity and act like the semiconductor. From that, then, you will put down an array of other materials in different layers, all of which will allow you to essentially apply a voltage onto the switch when you want to, and turn it on and off. And this includes materials that conduct electricity because you need to get signals or information in and out. Materials that don't conduct electricity. So electrons don't go where you don't want them to go. You want them to go in a particular path. And then um, other materials that will prevent the um, water and air getting in and therefore killing your device. And it's the introduction of those other materials which is where the complexity arises in making your your actual device starting from the very simple silicon wafer 
So the reason we want these transistors to switch on and off is because it allows for um, uh, essentially decision making, right? Is that, is, is that correct? That it allows us to, yeah. to to basically allow a computer to make a decision under a certain condition if the switch is on. If the, yes. Not miles off binary um, as, a, as, a, as a central idea. So it's, it's a, yeah, so, it, you know, computers use binary logic, right? One zero. And the reason that computers and transistors are so intertwined is that a switch is one or zero. Right. Yeah. Quantum computing obviously is a, a much more complex um, manifestation of that. But what we use every day is on off. And when so essentially you send in a signal, your transistors that are hooked up will then make a decision based on the value of the signal that's coming in. Is it high or low or on or off? And then it will switch various transistors to allow you to get an output. And that's what your computer is doing billions of times a second going through the central processing unit. And it's all coming from Boolean logic, which was worked out by George Boole in UCC back 150 years ago. Yeah, if if this, then that, and sort of conditional logical arguments Precisely. will allow us is the underpinning of all of our our, our computing technology. Yeah. So so th- so that's the, the basic idea of what we're talking about when we talk about transistors and and mm-hmm. computers based on those. This is all based on really the highest level of technology developing new materials to try and see if we can make these devices smaller, more efficient uh, and better performing. Can you talk to me about the sort of sizes that we're talking about and the sort of um, building that you're working at the very cutting edge of these computers? Yeah, so um, if, if you open up, say, your computer and take out the CPU there with the Intel or AMD logo on it, on that pretty small piece of silicon, that chip, are billions and billions of these transistors. So each individual transistor is is extremely small. Let's say on the scale of a few nanometers, where a nanometer is a billionth of one meter. It's always very hard to put that into scale. The, the example I was reading up on yesterday was that, that a, a human red blood cell is 7,000 nanometers and a oh. virus, it can be around 14 nanometers. So we're right. talking about really, really tiny yeah. um, uh, transistors. Yes, and, 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 almost, and at the point where um, every atom that you do or do not include into the material counts. And, you know, the atom is obviously the smallest piece of material that we can actually manipulate. So we're, we're coming down to that kind of scale where you're dealing with individual atoms, which then are obviously smaller, much smaller than, you know, virus, et cetera, that you've mentioned. Just for comparison, the first Intel chips had a few thousand transistors on a similar size. And so now we've gone to billions. So the other thing we've done is we've moved away from flat structures, like say a, an area of land that's got no hills to very complex three-dimensional structures that you could imagine look something like uh, um, the skyline of, of New York City, right? With all those very tall, narrow buildings. And so the height of those features is much bigger than their width. And you have to put down a, a material coating or remove one on those features and have it absolutely perfectly the same across the whole structure. Now, if you're an atom, those features are absolutely huge. So when I'm putting down my atoms to grow the material, uh, it's really important that I'm able to control which atoms go down, where, and how they can stick together to start to build up the material. So this requires 
the most complex production facilities on the planet together with the most complex production um, tools on the planet. And just as a very brief example, if, if it's okay, Intel took delivery of um, a piece of kit from a company called ASML for doing certain aspects of the production process. It, um, I believe it came in, in 20 trucks and then it had to be assembled and it is absolutely huge. And it's probably the most expensive single piece of production equipment that you can buy at the moment. And that's to make the very smallest transistors on the planet. So, But, but, but when you're talking about atom by atom, I mean, that is insane as an idea. How on earth do you manipulate individual atoms? I mean, you obviously yeah. can't make pincers made of individual atoms. Like, what, how do you layer down these materials to make these chips atom well, by atom? Yeah, so, I mean, and, and that's the magic, right? So, in principle, you can use very powerful microscopes to actually do it atom by atom, like a pincer approach, but they're not practical, right? It takes ages to move the atoms. So, what, what we do is, is we exploit chemistry, and we use chemistry on surfaces. And that is something we actually know a lot about and can control. And that's where what my group does with simulation side. And then my colleagues and our industry partners, they do it experimentally. And we put the whole lot together. So the basic idea is you want to put down a, a layer that has some metal in it to make a wire. So you're going to introduce a molecule that has the metal in it with some other um, atoms that protect the metal. So it's like a package. And so you fire the metal down in its package onto the surface. Part of the package goes away just because that's what happens in chemistry on surfaces. And then you bring in another molecule. It could be something like oxygen or water, which is quite reactive. And that will remove the rest of the package and stick to the metal. So now you have your metal atom on the surface and the, the other atoms that it needs start to build up the film. The magic here for me is that when the metal sticks at a certain place on the surface, it sticks. It doesn't wander around. So then when the next protected metal comes in, it's not going to stick where the first metal is, right? It's going to find another place to go. And then you throw in enough of those metal atoms in their package, you'll start to build up um, a layer of them covering the surface. Once you've covered the surface with those atoms and you try to fire more in, you can't. They don't stick and they bounce away. So now you, you've controlled exactly how much has, of the material has been put on the surface. And it's one atomic layer. So it's one layer that's one atom thick. You could stop there if you, if, if you want to and yeah. have an atomically thick piece of metal. But in, in reality, you always put down a few layers because they're more um, efficient and, and, and do the, um, their job better. Lots of really interesting work to do. For the next few decades, silicon and its friends will, will, will definitely be king and need us to keep developing these processes to put down the materials to make those transistors work. I have to say, I, I, I learned so much from that. And it is a really amazing a type of science because we talk a lot about health and, and I can wrap my head around all, almost all of the ideas in health. But when you get to this atomic manipulation of molecules to, to conduct electricity, which is already my, my kryptonite, uh, it's just it's, it's amazing to hear uh, how far we're going. Uh, Dr. Michael Nolan from the Tyndall Research Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. 
Now, to look at some of the comments uh, from last week, we did a feature on killer bees, which we found out were actually the result of a horrible experiment going wrong by a guy called Care in Brazil, who was trying to make honeybees even honeyer uh, in, in South America. Uh, but he used these Africanized bees that ended up being like super deadly and extremely aggressive. And they escaped and have taken over large parts of America. I mean, it's, it's actually like something from a movie, which of course it did eventually become many uh, bee movies throughout the 1970s and 80s. Um, we had uh, a lovely uh, text in from someone saying, that was one of the best pieces I've heard in your show. Such a knowledgeable guest and a fascinating issue. Well done to you both. That's from Billy, a uh, recovering entomologist. We also were talking in Newsround about the potential to use human waste as fertilizer under controlled circumstances that we literally flush this stuff down the toilet and we could put it to better use. And uh, new research suggests that it's relatively safe um, and doesn't have a huge amount of residue of, you know, for example, things like antibiotics, which you don't want going from your waste onto the food and then ingesting them over and over again. It's going to lead to uh, a sort of a, an absolute catalyst of um, of trouble for this current antimicrobial resistance issue that we have at the moment. Jean said, there is sewage sludge on agriculture land used in a restricted form already in Ireland. It's called Biofert and comes from Ringsend Sewage Works. I did not know that. In what, in what circumstances is it used? Uh, Jean, that's really interesting. Joseph says, at the Dublin Waste Treatment Plant, trucks take out loads of pasteurised fertiliser every day. So yes, yeah, so this is corroborated now. Two different sources have told us that we use human waste uh, for fertiliser, but it's, um, it's pasteurised. Love to know where that goes. Anybody know? You can email us, science at newstalk.com. Uh, and Bob emailed us in, I'm constantly talking about my lack of understanding for of electricity on this programme. And Bob says, uh, I too have a blind spot and unease about how electricity is taught. I tried to study it at third level. It just didn't make sense. It is a form of magic, Bob. But you know what I found? Like the old adage says, the best way to understand something is to try and teach it to someone else. And I give a science talk to my son's class recently and I had to try and figure out how to explain electricity. And I think this is a big deal for if you've been listening to the program for quite some time. I think I understand it but I'm, never, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you on the program in case I've gotten it wrong. But in my brain, that, that, that complete mystery is sort of gone. I think I have it, Bob. So I'll give you a call and we can chat about electricity one day. Uh, that's it from us on this week's uh, podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much to the team, Marais uh, Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.